already gave all of the apologies in advance, and so if something freaks you out because you weren't here yesterday, I probably already apologized for it. So, um, <laughs> but last night we began uh, our three talks by talking about uh, justification and what in storytelling is called the outer boundaries. What kind of world uh, do we live in that, um, that God created so that he can come and bring our salvation within this, this kind of story, this kind of world? Uh, and we talked about the deep covenant, the deep covenantal realities that across time and space that we are connected. Uh, we were connected originally to Adam when he fell and then connected across time and space to Jesus Christ by means of the covenant and that by faith, what he did on the cross becomes justification for us and we stand uh, before him and stand in God's presence and, and are welcome there because of our sins being taken away. And so, um, and at to this morning we're going to begin talking about sanctification, but really we're going to be talking about the way our justification and sanctification are so inextricably linked. Now, when you start talking about sanctification, even though I warned you yesterday that this isn't going to be a big, long guilt trip, you still probably are thinking, yeah, but he's trying to trick us because I know how guilt manipulation works, right? <laughs> um, it, but, but the reality is, guilt is not a very strong motivator. It, it doesn't last very long as a motivation. If you, the, the feelings of guilt don't last well as a motivation. In fact, you um, have probably had someone in your life, or maybe even been someone in somebody else's life, that has been a guilt manipulator. I, ha um, I tried to raise uh, children that didn't, um, give in to guilt manipulation, and when my nine-year-old daughter, Abigail, who's not here once, she did something, and I said, honey, you don't, have, do you even understand how that made so-and-so feel? And, and she said, well, you have trained me not to give in to guilt manipulation, Dad, so I can't even listen to anything you're going to say now. <laughs> I was like, oh last you, right? Uh, because, but because we are always tempted to try and control the people around us using guilt, using guilt and shame and all sorts of things. But guilt isn't, a, this is how we know guilt isn't a strong motivator, because you always have to ratchet it up if you're going to control somebody with guilt. And we've been in this situation where somebody's trying to control us or we're trying to control somebody and we try and make them feel guilty. And then the next time around, you have to add to it and make them feel extra guilty. And the next thing you know, you say, look, do you want me to just drive off a cliff? Is that what, it's because that's what you're making me want to do, right? With a guilt manipulation, you have to ratchet it up and ratchet it up. Because it is not designed by God to be a motivator. And so it doesn't work well. And so, um, but, but that isn't because there isn't. Uh, there isn't ways that God do, is, has designed for us to be motivated, right? Emotional terrorism isn't one of them, so it doesn't work well. But um, Ambrose says this about motivation in sanctification. Ambrose, uh, who was Augustine's pastor, he says this, Is there anyone who would like to be beautiful in face and at the same time have its charm spoiled 
by a beast-like body and fearful talons. Now the form of virtues is so wonderful and glorious, and especially the beauty of wisdom, as the whole of Scripture tells us, that it draws us to it. Now, this is, this is what he's saying. He said, hey, everybody wants to have a beautiful face that people look at, right? But would you take a beautiful face if it came with the body of some monstrous creature and had long talons on it, right? Like that monster in the village, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, right? If you looked like that monster, but your face was pretty, would you be willing to do that? He says, no, of course not. Because that is, it, it, because it's not a beautiful in full form. He said, but when you live well and have wisdom, right? when those two things go together, he said, it's like finding something that's so beautiful that it draws you to it. He says, the good life, the life lived with wisdom, the life lived with virtue in the world God made is so beautiful that when we see it, when we realize it, when the scriptures tell us about it, that it actually draws us towards wanting to do what's right. And that, Ambrose says, is the central way we're designed to be motivated, by the beauty of the thing God is calling us to do. Now, wisdom, there's lots of different definitions. The, wisdom, the, the definition I like to use for wisdom is, wisdom is skill in living well in the world God made. Right? Wisdom is skill in living well in the world God made. The ability to live well in the world God made. When God, and so God, he tells us all sorts of things where he says, this is how I want you to live. Don't murder your neighbor or a stranger, right? Don't murder anyone, right? Don't murder, right? Don't steal, don't take things that aren't yours, right? He tells us these things and we look at them and we say, okay, living in a world where people don't murder one another is obviously better than living in a world where people do murder one another. Living in a world where we don't have to uh, uh, lock our doors when we just run inside to grab something out of the house because we're not gonna get robbed is better than living in a world where we do get robbed. <coughs> the world that God is trying to get us to live when he calls us with his law, with his, with his word, is better. The world that he's trying to build as he makes us virtuous and he calls us to is better. The problem is we have a hard time getting to it because we forget who we are. We forget who we are. I, I'm... I love the, that hymn that we sang this morning. That's a new one to me. Um, but uh, in there, it talks about the, the, uh, the chains being broken off of Judah's lion so that he can go and, uh, and destroy the serpent. Well, that's what we're going to talk, be talking about today. What chains did God take off of us so that we could be freed up to actually live the life that he called us to live? And I was going to use, well... Growth in grace, sanctification, growth in wisdom is actually just getting better at living in the world. Right? Getting better at living. Right? When, we, when you first become a Christian or when you're a young person, right, you're often really bad at being a Christian. At least I was. I was a new Christian and could say, hey, this is what you're going to do. I was like, well, why would we do that? I've never done that before. Was, well, that's how Christians live. You're like, well, that's... 
seems really hard. It's a lot different than the way I've always lived, right? It takes practice to get good at living. Thankfully, we have an eternity to practice to get better and better at it. But getting better at living really comes down to getting better at avoiding death when it pops up its little zombie hand and its little zombie head and says, hey, come down here. You want to snuggle? (laughs) Right? Death is all around us, and it's saying, hey, come over here. Hang out with me. Hang out with me. And skill in living in this world is a matter of learning how to recognize, no, that's death. I'm moving towards life. I'm going to avoid the death and move towards the life. Um, and, and getting better and better at it as we grow in grace. And I was thinking of using Hellboy as an example, but then only one person raised their hand, or a couple of people raised their hand. Um, and then I thought, well, I'll use Iron Giant. There were more hands. But then this morning, um, I, I, one young man was looking for syrup for his coffee, and I realized I was among Santa's elves. <laughs> <coughs> so I thought, that's actually a much better example of what it is that we're talking about. If you've seen the movie Elf, raise your hand. Okay. Good, good, good. You are, you are normal. You never know when you're visiting a Presbyterian church how normal they're going to end up being. Elf is one of those deep movies that explores in story form the connection between our identity and our relationships. Right? I'm sure that's what you thought of, but but that's really what it is. Buddy the Elf is never going to become who he was meant to be because he's living against reality up at the North Pole, right? He literally doesn't fit on the toilets. (laughs) You can't live that way. That's not who he is, that's not who he's meant to be. Um, But what's great about the movie is Buddy the Elf never really changes, any of his personality traits. He doesn't become a completely different person. He doesn't, all he does is he shifts and he changes his relationships until he is in the right place amongst the people that are, that are like him, that he is like, right? He finds his people and then he learns how to live amongst them and learns how he's supposed to live as a full-grown adult human male and not as one of Santa's elves, By being around other full-grown adult human males. He learns you can't walk into the ladies' room and sing. If you're a man. Now, remember, the movie was made in 2008 or whatever. (laughs) And I know you guys are from Seattle. So you guys may not realize that's not normal everywhere else in the world. But it's not. Buddy the Elf, he doesn't change in his personality. He doesn't change internally. Um, primarily to become the person that he is created to be. The change happens to him, and then he becomes the person he's going to be because he has shifted to the place he's supposed to be. First, he finds out he's adopted, right? <laughs> Sitting on Grandpa El- a Papa Elf's lap, and he's so much bigger than him. I'm adopted, how can this be, says his tiny dad. And so he goes looking for his new dad. And in the process, he realizes that his life story is not what he thought it was. He hasn't heard the whole story. He has a little snippet of his life story, but it's put into a brand new context. And his life story is made new by getting a new beginning. He finds out he has a different dad. He has a different mom. And he travels to a new city and is adopted by the city of New York. 
Right, so not only, and he seems to fit right in there, even though he's dressed like an elf. Nobody even flinches at a full-grown man dressed like an elf walking around. Um, and he, he meets a girl, and that changes everything. Now, young men, that will be true of you someday. Right now, you're like, you know what I really like? I like frisbee golf and sports and hanging out with the dudes. And then some curvy, wonderful creation walks into your life and you think, who needs guys? <laughs> right? It changes everything. Everything is shifted and reoriented. And you get, by the end of the story, you have a whole new buddy, the elf. But really, everything that has changed is his relationships around him. It doesn't begin with internal changes. The internal changes come as he learns who he is and he learns more and more about what he's created to be. This is how Paul puts it in, in uh, Ephesians 2. We're going to look at the, uh, throughout the chapter of Ephesians 2, but at the very beginning, chapter 2, starting at verse 2, Paul writes this. He says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now he's going to answer these four used to's, what you once were like, um, I, and I, I like to think of them, or I think of them as the four slave chains, the four fetters of our slave chains, right, one for each limb, and it's how death and sin kept control of us before we knew Christ, right, Paul says there are four ways that we were kept, that, that death and sin kept control of us before we knew Christ, he says, you once walked according to the course of this world. Now, dead things, when dropped in a stream, just float downstream. Dead things float downstream. It takes very little effort to simply go with the flow of the course of the world. And he says, that's what you were. You were people that just went with the flow of the course of the world. If you have watched uh, much Walking Dead, I, a friend of mine just turned me on to it recently. And, and so now, you know, I was walking through the woods last night and I heard a crack. Some, a, a, somebody stepped on a pine cone off in the distance and I immediately thought, and here's how it ends. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm about halfway into season two of The Walking Dead. But what's amazing is these zombie hordes, they just wander straight until something stops them. And you have these big groups of zombies that just wander straight until something stops them. And I thought, hey, I used to live like that. I remember what it was like to be like that. You just go straight until you run into something. That's what it's like. That we, we walked according to the course of this world. Kids. This is why growing up in a Christian home sometimes seems harder. Kids, you, I know that you know this. Sometimes you look around at everybody else and you're like, 
that's harder to be raised in a Christian family. They got all these expectations. My parents don't just sit around and smoke pot and let me play video games all day. It's harder to grow up. I have to learn Latin. (laughs) But it's because as Christians, we don't just float along. And I promise you, it's so much better to not just float along. Right? We swim upstream. We hike the hills of the world. We confess sin and we resist it. But it's because we know that we hike to the peak. We know that the hike to the peak is worth the resistance. We as Christians, we're hunting the beauty hidden in the thin-aired peaks of the world. And that means going against the bored horde that's drifting the course of the world. So kids, sometimes it feels like it's harder to be a Christian. But that's because there's views that we want to see. We want to swim upstream to find out where does all of this goodness and beauty come from. So sometimes it is harder than floating along. But it's worth it because all of these streams that they're floating down end up going off waterfalls into hell. The water and the fire. I just mixed the metaphor. but (laughs) I couldn't figure out how to. Yeah, I don't know. But it, Paul goes on, he says, the other, so, so one of the things is that we float along, the course of the world is one of the ways that we are bound to sin and death. But then he says we're also uh, bound uh, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now he's going to call us sons of wrath, and he also calls us sons of disobedience. Now, you remember we talked yesterday about Adam and Eve in the garden and the lying serpent, the lying dragon. Well, his lies that he told in the garden still echo through the valleys of the world. And they're lies that are designed to steal joy. And we'll talk, we're going to talk more specifically tonight about, uh, about dealing with the lies that we tell ourselves, the lies that we grab onto. <coughs> Excuse me. Because we've got to learn to recognize the lies and then replace them with truth. But here we see that Paul says we're under the rule and we were under the rule and the reign of the prince of the power of the air. Where we were under the reign of a being that didn't love us and being that in fact hated us. Our worst enemy was also our ruler. Because Adam handed over his authority when he listened to the devil in the garden. So one of the chains that holds us is the course of the world is the easiest course to float down. The other is that the authority over us, the spiritual authority over us, was also our enemy. But then he says there also was an internal reason, that, that, or an internal way that death held us, an internal fetter of the chains of our slavery. We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So he says, but it's not like you weren't also a part of it. You weren't um, an innocent victim that was just captured willy-nilly off the 
the, the uh, shores of the San Juan Islands and drug up to slavery in San Francisco, or down, I guess. Down to slavery in San Francisco, right? It says, we, we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Right? We uh, are people that want the wrong thing a lot. And there was no limitation on our desires without Christ. We wanted the wrong thing. We wanted it a lot. And we got it. We, we were able to uh, hunt after it and, we, and, by, and, and accomplish all of our sinful desires. And our sinful desires grew up out of our nature. And that's where he ends. Because we were, by nature, children of wrath, just as the others. By nature, children of wrath. We produced the fruit of wrath because we were children of wrath. Right? And remember when we talked about outer boundaries. Right? This is the kind of place where the connection between blessings and curses across time and space is real. Covenant connections are real. And so we know it's going to, it's going to take a deep and powerful curse breaker to get us out of a mess like this. It's going to take a deep and powerful work of God to get us out of a mess like this. And Paul isn't just reminding us of what it was like before because he wants us to remember and feel really bad about it. Right? Um, and this sometimes is why people like to tell their testimonies is because they still are feeling really terrible about the way they used to be. And so they want to, they're, they're still trying to work it out. But what Paul does, as he reminds us in these short few, three, four verses, so that he can get to the rest of the chapter, where he gives the way out of all of these fetters, the way out of these chains. Because the next, uh, the, the rest of the chapter is four sections, each answering one of these chains. Because he says, you once walked according to the course of this world. And then verse 4 says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right? He says, it was God's idea to pick you up out of the course of this world, to pick you up out of the death, pick you up out of the sin and say, hey, come over here. You aren't on that course anymore. Now, our habits pull us back to it sometimes, but, but we're not dead. We don't just float downstream anymore. He said, you've been made alive together with Christ. And then remember, he said, we also lived according to the prince of the power of the air. But he says, the next verse, in verse 6, he says, you have been but God has made you alive again, and he's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right? What's higher, the air or heaven? Right? Heaven, in case you weren't sure yet. Right? It goes earth, it goes air, and then it goes heaven. Right? We, the prince of the power of the air doesn't have any authority over heaven, but in Christ Jesus, that's where we sit in the heavenly places. <coughs> that covenantal connection uh, has brought us above the prince of the power of the air so that he, God might show us the exceeding riches of his grace 
in kindness towards us. The exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then he tells us, because you've been prepared for good works. Right? This, is how, this is how we get to our sanctification. When we're under the prince of the power of the air, we're powerless to do the things that we're called to do, that we were created to do. But God goes in and he picks us up. He connects us to Christ. And then when Christ ascends to the heavenly places, we go with him. We're no longer under the authority of the prince of the power of the air because God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in good works, Paul says. Sanctification, us learning how to live well and do, do well and do good works in the world, is because of God's action. At the end of the day, any good works that we end up doing, we stop and we say, whew, thank you for that, Lord. Because it's his act of coming and getting us and retrieving us and, and t- taking us out from under the authority of the prince of the power of the air that we're able to do good works, Paul says. When we, when we lived down in California, artichoke bushes grew everywhere. Perhaps you didn't know artichokes grow on bushes. An artichoke is a flower that grows on the end of a long bush. It's really quite amazing. If you let them grow, they become these big, purple, beautiful flowers, but you can't eat them anymore, and so you got to pick them when they're still edible, because they are the greatest of all the edible flowers. Can I get an amen? Yeah, artichokes are great. Um, and <laughs> an artichoke, though, bush, you know that it's alive because it's producing artichokes. It doesn't become alive by producing an artichoke. You don't wait around and say, okay, Produce an artichoke so you can be alive. Right? It doesn't even make any sense. Right? You don't go to the apple tree and say, produce some apples, then you'll be alive. Right? You produce artichokes because you're a, a living artichoke plant. And it's the same sort of way. It's, Paul is saying here, God has made us alive, and he's taken us out from under the authority of the devil so that we will produce good fruit. I woke up my the allergies are terrible here. These guys, you couldn't even keep the wagon train moving though, because you would have just gone right into the sea. So I guess this, you had to stop here. <laughs> so the, the third chain that Paul addresses, we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Verse 11, Paul says, You all were once Gentiles in the flesh. When you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I remember yesterday we talked about the distance that was a part of the curse that came from sin. When the curses are broken, we know it's because the guilt and the sin have been taken away. And distance from God was a part of it. He says, you've been brought near now. But how have we been brought near? Christ himself is our peace. 
who he has made both one, and he has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Where, Where was that enmity? We, in our flesh, desired to do what was wrong. But Christ came in his flesh, and he took all of that sin, all of that curse onto himself, in order to destroy, it says, the rivalry. Destroy the rivalry. Because at the root of all sin is our desire to be God. It's our desire to take his place. That's at the root of all of the sin in the world. But what happens is, in his flesh, Christ destroys that rivalry. The rivalry that exists within us. And then, as he goes on, we learn that there's also, that rivalry causes all sorts of problems between us and our neighbors between us and our communities, between our cities, between nation states. Right At the base of all war is this lust, James tells us. But in his flesh, he destroyed all of that rivalry. And so now, verse 16 says, we have been reconciled to God in one body through the cross, putting to death the enmity. So he took care of one chain, uh, the, the first chain. He took care of the second chain. And now that third chain, which is the, the desires of our own flesh, he took care of those by, by becoming, by taking on flesh, and then that flesh dying for us on the cross. And then the last one, you were by nature the children of wrath, just as the others. By nature, you were children of wrath. So he says, we've got a family problem. We've got a, we, we, we are in the wrong family. We're children of the wrong family. We're by nature children of wrath. Which is why in verse 18, as the next verse, Paul says, for, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The last thing that held us was the family that we are a part of. We're children of wrath, but we've been adopted into God's family. We're no longer children of wrath. We're now children of God. Each of the four things that kept us slaves of sin and death, each of the four fetters, Christ has come and with the cross pried them off of each of our limbs. And so now, the whole building, verse 21, being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So God is building a temple in the world made of human stones. And he goes out into the world and he grabs a stone off of the temple of some other idol and he baptizes it, sticks it in, chips some pieces off, makes it fit. And he's building together himself a place to live by adopting us into his family. Now there's a genre of storytelling called the found family movie. And some of my favorite movies are the found family movie where the protagonists of a movie come together and they create a bond that is a lot like a family. 
But this is why the Fast and the Furious movies have 10 of them. I mean, besides the really fast cars. Uh, but how, why is it that there's 10 of these Fast and the Furious movies? You would think they would stop after three like normal people. But no, people want to be a part of this found family in the Fast and the Furious movies. Guardians of the Galaxy is the same sort of thing. Not only was the third one, the newest one, the most anti-trans movie that has ever been made in the history of the world. Uh, how did they get away with that? I have no idea. It's also a found, a found family movie. Because right? normally, you don't have a raccoon and a couple of aliens and, uh, and people um, make up a family. But they have found one another, and they've created bonds that are tight like a family. And often, people think that's what the church is. It's some sort of fam found family where we like one another a lot, and so we hang out, and we spend time together, and it's like a family around here. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says you have been adopted into the family of God. That it's a real family. You have been adopted into the family of God. Jesus is your older brother. God the Father is your father. You have been brought into the family of God that existed from all eternity. This is a full and real family. Such that the inheritance is ours. And the neighbor boy, he might be so much like family that when he comes in, he can just get in the freezer and get out an otter pop and nobody questions it. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's basically one of the family. But if you died and then he showed up at the will reading and was like, where's my part? You would say, okay, look, you were like family. <laughs> Quote, unquote, like family. I mean, it just meant we liked you a lot or we were all too scared to tell you no. Right? But, but it's the same if he came in and he went, you know, and he, he went to grab something and you picked up the wooden spoon and you spanked him. Everybody would say, well, no, no, he's, he's like family. He's not real family. But God says we are real family. We've been adopted. The inheritance is ours. The discipline is ours. We are his children. And because of that, our whole citizenship has changed. And a community grows out of that covenant connection. The community doesn't give us the covenant connection. The covenant connection gives us the community. We are built together over time, built together into a community where the Spirit of God is known to dwell, where the Spirit of God promises to show himself to the world. We're built together into a temple. That means that we will fit together so that God can be made, make himself known to the world. Now, sometimes we're going through something and we think, Lord, I don't get it. You're putting me through some suffering and it's really painful. You're putting me through some sort of difficulty and it's really, really hard. But it's sometimes God is just chipping the corner off of you because he has a place for you in the community that he needs to fit you into. And so he's reshaping you so that you'll fit into the, the, the job he has for you in the, in the church. This is in 2 Corinthians 1. 
Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. For if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. Remember that deep covenant connection we have with Christ? Well, Paul here says we also have it with one another. And that a major part of our sanctification is as he draws us towards one another, our life is poured out for those around us, for those in the community, in the family. Paul says, I'm suffering, I'm suffering like Christ suffered. And he says, and I can rejoice in that because I know when I receive comfort, you receive comfort. That when I receive comfort, I'm going to meet somebody that's going to need comfort. And I'm going to have received it from God and I'm going to know how to give it to my neighbor. Paul says, my suffering is fitting me into the place that my church needs. And so I can rejoice in it. Now, I wasn't planning on addressing this passage uh, with you this week. Um, but my Bible reading in Galatians 2, um, I, I just turned to the wrong book. I'm working through and I'm like, okay, I did Galatians 1 yesterday. So I'm in Galatians 2 today and it was early. And, and I'm reading and I'm like, man. Galatians 2 is knocking my socks off today. This is so good. This is what I need to hear. This is right what I've been struggling with. And then I go to try and tell Aaron about it, and I realize I'm not even in the right book. I'm in the, I'm in the wrong book altogether. But it was addressing exactly the thing that I had been struggling with for a long time. Where you think, why, Lord, this is, why has it been so hard? Why has this year been so hard? Why are we going through this? Right? And, uh, and here, Paul is saying, because, I'm, because God is breaking the fetters off of you in giving you freedom so that you can be the person that God has created you to be to fit into the community, to be who, the, who it is the people around you need. And he's doing the same peep thing with other people because he didn't create us to be individuals the, uh, that, that exist all on our own. He created us to be a part of his family. And families are pushed, pushed towards one another with blessings and with suffering. Because Paul says, we used to walk according to the course of the world, but God stepped in and completed our salvation, bringing life where there used to be uh, uh, just death. He says, we used to live according to the lies of the devil, thinking that we could become God, or we could control God, or we could replace God. But now, we are above the devil in Christ, seated in the heavenly places. We used to simply follow the lusts of our flesh, but Christ took on flesh and took his flesh to the cross. 
we used to be children of wrath. But now we've been adopted into the family of God. So our relationship to the world was changed by the cross. Our relationship to the cosmos was changed by the cross. Our relationship to ourselves, to our own flesh and mind, was changed by the cross. And our relationship to one another was changed by the cross. And that gives us a whole new identity. It doesn't change our personality. Over time, it might seem like it does, but that's just because it has taken away our sins. But it gives us a whole new identity. And sanctification is living according to this truth. Remember what Ambrose said. Wisdom is the most beautiful way to live. The most enjoyable way to live. Reality is much better than the lies of our old identity. Reality is much more enjoyable than the lies of our old identity. And growing in wisdom, or seeking to grow and change and become more of what God has created us to be, learning to leave death aside and not follow it, learning to, to follow the law and, and, and seek after life, love one another, that wisdom, that skill in living, living well in the world God made is much more beautiful than the lies of the flesh at war with reality. So when God says, I'm going to grow you up, I'm going to apply some pressure, I'm going to go after that gold and get rid of some of that dross, and so he turns the heat up to 500. It's so easy to say, Lord, why? Why, why do you hate me? Why are you after me like this? Well, what God is doing is he's saying, let me show you the beauty you're missing out on, the joy you're missing out on by not living according to wisdom. He's getting the pry bar into the chains. He's starting to wrench on it. And you're like, oh, my wrist, Lord, that hurts. And he's like, trust me. I'm just going to get you out of this, get you out of these chains. And he always does that by applying pressure in our lives. But it's in order to make you the right shape to fit into the temple of the Lord that he is building out of your church. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this lake and this place and this, the fun we're going to have today. Uh, and Father, we thank you for your sanctifying presence. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work within each one of us. Lord, that you would be drawing us uh, into the person that you created us to be, into the relationships you created us to have, and that you would be freeing us from death and sin and the flesh and the devil. Lord, free us to be able to live into the beauty and live into the joy uh, that you've created us to have. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Q&A today? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I forgot to tell you. The last night I didn't have uh, enough battery. Now I've got plenty of battery, but I forgot to give you my phone number. So if you want to text a, a question... Text a question to 425-890-0674, but I've got a couple already. All right. <laughs> um, and I'm, re I'm representing people with my own question. Uh, 
guys who write stories and films and stuff like that, they have this weird way of thinking about the world that guys that don't write stories and do films, <laughs> they, they actually think we're in a story. Yeah, that's weird. I agree. Yeah. So um, I started to believe it a while ago. There was a long time in my Christian life it never even crossed my mind. Um, and I'm kind of wondering if other people think that too, that it, what do you mean we're in, we're in a story? Right, yeah. Well, um, there's, the, um, John Calvin says, he, he says this, this place um, and this history is the theater of God's glory, right? Um, that, and so the, the, everything that we run into is, um, is space for God to be glorified and is props in the story of the glorification of the father glorifying his son. So he says that the world is the theater of God's glory. Um, and so it's not a new idea to think in terms of story. Um, and you know, Shakespeare says all the world's a stage and each one of us is players in it. So uh, I think the, the reason it feels new is because modernism has tried to move us into a different sort of creature. Mm -hmm. um, in our imaginations, away from being a, a character in God's story, um, to either we, each of us is the the hero um, of of our own story, because in God's story you're an extra. I mean that's yeah, that's right. That's the reality. <laughs> yeah. And it, and you know, I, like like David says, I'd rather be a a, a doorkeeper in the house of God than. It, um, I'd rather be an extra in God's story right. than somebody important in somebody else's story. Um, but uh, in modernism, we're either the hero of our own story, which is kind of existentialism and existential modernism, um, or uh, we don't think in terms of narrative at all because of Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is, a, is the view that we actually have to be saved from history, that, that being a historical creature is part of the problem, and so we need to be saved from being historical okay. creatures. So if I'm, not, uh, if I'm not the center of the story, then I, I, I don't matter. If I'm just an extra. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, many, have you, how many of you guys have seen Studio C? Okay. Well. You know, do you know the, the <laughs> sketch that they do with the... the the nephew of the producer is the extra in the background, and he keeps looking at the camera. <laughs> My kid knows that one, right? You know that one, right? <laughs> Are extras important? Right, yeah. So it's this, it's this amazing sketch where the producer's nephew is brought on as an extra, and, he, and he's right behind this couple having a conversation at the dinner table, and he keeps leaning his head over and looking at the camera. <laughs> And you, the rest of the scene can't work, and they, they can't get it because one of the extras won't play his role, right? So, um, and having having filmed things where you have large groups of extras, and you know, it was the, the one of the last sets I was producer on. Um, my one of my jobs was preparing the extras, right? And the extras actually make the scene. Um, and if you you know the new thing that Disney is doing. Is they're adding in AI extras into their TV shows because they don't want to pay for, they don't want to pay extras, and so if they they'll pan across a group of people at a sporting event and half of them are AI, and they you know they look like the um, <laughs> what, 
in a video game, what are the characters, the non-playable characters? NPCs, right? They look like NPCs <laughs> in the background, cheering at the wrong time. And, uh, and, and as soon as you notice it, you can't pay attention to the rest of the scene, right? So, <coughs> uh, um, and so even as an extra in evangelism, our job really is to get out of the way, okay. right? To, to point people to Jesus. Right. He's the hero of the story. And then I'm like David. I'd rather be in yeah. a doorkeeper at right. God's house. That's a wonderful place to be. Yeah. It's it, a wonderful place to be an extra in God's story because of how glorious that story is. Right. And right. because God, because our God is a God whose glory uh, and love spills and overflows yeah. out onto the extras. And when I'm the center of my story, it's, it really ends up being a bad story. Right. Even for me. Right. Yeah. yeah. And if you end up, you know, um, a character in... Uh, other stories, you you have gods who bite and devour and eat you. Yep. So yep. you end up in the temple of doom, and yeah. he's <laughs> taking your heart out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't want to be an extra in that. Thanks, story. that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's a question that came in. People tell and retell their testimonies because they continue to carry a sense of guilt in their life. Can you expound on that? You, you mentioned. Yeah. So there's there's. Um, uh, there's different ways we can use our testimony because we're told to tell our story to the next generation, right? So your kids should know your, you, you, you should be testifying to God's work in your life, to your children, to the kids in the church. Um, I, I haven't seen it done in English-speaking churches, but I pastored in the Asian American Christian Fellowship, and the Asian churches would have time set aside for testimony, uh, where the older Christians would get up and they would tell the tell younger the younger Christians what God is either doing in their life in this moment or stories from when they were younger, and it was a really neat um, practice that the that the Asian churches had worked into the liturgy. So on Sunday, some older Christian would give mm -hmm. testimony. So that's a good thing that we should be doing. But there's a way that to give testimony um, that forgets its testimony of God's grace in our life, right? And it becomes testimony, it becomes confession, um, because we're not, we're, we're not testifying to, we're not putting our story into the context of the gospel well. We're saying, oh my gosh, I used to be so bad. And sometimes it's because you've got a middle-aged guy that he just, his life doesn't feel like it has meaning, but he used to be a bad, a bad person. person. <laughs> And so he wants everybody to at least know that I got the when I got the tattoo, I was a cool dude. Um, but, uh, but the point of giving testimony is, let me tell you the good things that God has done in my life. Right. Right? It's testimony to God's grace. And so um, sometimes we get the testimony turned inside out. And mm -hmm. It ends up focusing on ourselves. On ourselves, yeah. Well, lots of guilt questions keep coming in. Guilt is an issue. Here's, here's another one. You mentioned that guilt wasn't intended to be a motivator. Why are we given the ability to have a guilty conscience? Isn't the ugly feeling of a guilty conscience part of what tells us that we're out of line with God? And Lord willing makes us want to change that. Is that technically a different thing from the feeling of guilt? Yeah, so because the, um, the, the, the feeling of uh, what we call the feeling of guilt is usually actually shame. Right, um, and the reason that we can't get rid of it is because we are, are we don't we we actually don't know what to do with shame in our culture, and so we talked about this a little last night. Um, but the the uh, guilt is an objective thing, and when we remember it's objective, 
then we know that what you do with objective thing is you go to the judge and ask, am I still guilty? Mm-hmm. Right? And then he, the judge tells you yes or no, you are guilty or you not. But, we, but when we uh, camp on the feelings of guilt, then we're saying we're the judge that decides on our guilt or, or not. Right? So right. Um, when Jesus says you're forgiven and you say, but I still feel so bad, right? you're saying, I'm the real judge here. But Jesus, right, which is not anything you want to say very often. No, Lord. Right? Um, I, I feel really guilty. Right? Guilt is an objective thing that, Je- that Jesus took away at the cross. Mm-hmm. And then he promises that at the end of time, he'll sit on the great white throne, that you'll stand in front of him, and he will say to you, not guilty, right? because your sin has been taken away. Now, that is an objective reality. That, and when we say, well, the feeling of I still feel really guilty, um, when, because we're identifying it with guilt, we're not sure what to do with it. Mm-hmm. It is usually shame, right? The, the shame that says, I, I can't, I, I'm so embarrassed that I did that, right? Um, and, you know, uh, one thing that I've learned from my wife is um, that you should, that when you're a sinner and then you're su- surprised that you sin, you've actually not taken seriously the fact that you're a sinner, right? When, when, you, when you say, I can't believe I did that, well, well why not? You're a sinner. That's, what's, that's what we do, right? We're sinners until the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we do with the shame, instead of saying, I can't believe I did that, I'm better than that, we say, well, no, you're not. That's okay, though, because Jesus died for you not as you hoped to be, but for you as you are. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we take the shame of our sin to Christ and say and confess, which means we agree together with God about our sin, and then he responds, I forgive you. Right. So as I'm walking as a Christian, now I'm a Christian, and I'm a sinner still, I sin, I have this feeling. I think sometimes we're calling that guilt as opposed to conviction Right. driving us to confession. Yeah. So I haven't dealt with my sin. And, and the feeling that I'm having is actually the, a, a correct feeling. I just put the wrong label on it. Yeah. Because we, and so you, cause you, if you haven't confessed your sin, then um, feeling that conviction of guilt is a good thing. That's a blessing, right? That's the Spirit's work in your life. And then you go and you confess it. Um, you, and you say, Lord, what I did was sin. And that, please forgive me, because Jesus died on the cross, then his response is, I forgive you. Yep. Right? And uh, that's where we fall in the other problem, is that we think, that's not a, but that's not enough, Lord, also. Right? Yeah. Well, I know you forgive me, but what else do I need? To, I need to do something, right? Right, right. <laughs> I got to pay you something. Yeah. yeah. So what, I, 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 what's my part? What's yeah. my part in this? Yeah, that's what gets it. Yeah. Um, early on in, in this talk, you mentioned, um, uh, I'm in the wrong place here. See, you you mentioned um, that there's a way for us. There is a a way that we are drawn towards beauty and wisdom, and it, it is it's something that is appealing to us without um, without Christianity having to be just a hard thing to do. And what what came one of the things that came to my mind is that this interesting um, thing that happens when unbelievers or people from broken families that are not in Christ or whatever just come to your home 
and sit and have dinner with your people. Something weird also, magical, is going on yeah. there. And, but without, they, they all of a sudden realize there's something that we have. Um, and I just wondered if you could just to speak to that. Because I think many of us don't think that we have something. Right, right. Well, especially when, when you've been a Christian a little while and, you, and the, the, even the, the, temp, the real temptation towards rivalry with one another goes away, right? Where, you, um, of course, you don't want to be rivals with the people in your house, right? You get a nice fellowship going and you sit and you have dinner and ask, hey, how was your day? And you're actually excited to hear how one another's day is. Those sorts of things that become little things um, in a world that is so full to the brim, full and overflowing with rivalry and, and self-love, even what we think of as small acts of fellowship become bright, bright lights, foghorns um, in, the, in the midst of confusion. Uh, and they become really attractive to people. We, we had, um, I, don't, I, I don't think I've told this story before. We had a, an older lady visit our church once um, with a, she had a little chihuahua, um, and she was walking past, and, and uh, there's a guy out front that would say, hey, to all everybody walking past, church is starting, come on in. And she's like, oh, okay, so she walked in. And she sat down, and um, she said she was completely confused by what was going on up front, that it didn't even seem like everything was in English. It was so foreign to her. But the way that the, the parents talked to their kids in the pew in front of her, she said, I know I'm at least coming back once more. I've got to see what's going on here. I've never mm -hmm. seen parents um, like their kids, yeah. right? Like they liked their kids. They were helping them. Um, they were helping them be a part of the worship service. Something that's small, it doesn't seem like a big deal. And, it, and it, you might be frustrated in the midst of it. Right. <laughs> like, why won't you just sit still, right? <laughs> and you're trying really hard to keep a smile on your face. <laughs> like, oh, right. Um, that, the, that love of gen across the generations is almost um, gone. I mean, you, you, people can live their whole life and never go anywhere where there's not a generational divide. Um, and so she came back the next week, and she was about halfway through a sermon in the book of Romans. She said it was like suddenly the, it turned into English. She started to understand it. But what drew her in was a mom and a dad with three little kids that were having a hard time sitting still, and the parents being kind to them, helping them learn how to sit still. Um, so the, there really is an attractive beauty uh, that comes with fellowship within a family, within a church. Right. Um, so you should invite your neighbors over for dinner. That's right. Yeah. I think the tr we, we don't realize how much those four, those four shackles being removed from us. Um, we still feel the, the, the effects right. of, of the fall. We're fighting all these things. We don't realize how free we look to the world. Right. Right. And, yeah. and how yeah. attractive that, that can be. Even though the cross is offensive. Um, and the message of the gospel is offensive. There's something very attractive to many that they see in us, and we should yeah. lean into that. We use it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we got. Yeah, no, I think we're done here. So, um, thank you very much again, Jason and Nate. You want to come up?
All right, thank you very much. A few things to let you know about. Good news and bad news. So, the bad news is that the swimming pool is not open. They're missing uh, some parts to it, and so we're not able to use the swimming pool at this time. Um, So, they're trying to get that fixed. But, um, But the lake is open. Um, I think the water slide is open. Water slide's open. The lake is open. I really encourage you to, if you want to do canoes or boats, do that in the morning because the canoes and boats will not be available in the afternoon because uh, they allow motor boats on the lake during the afternoon and um, and I guess they don't. They don't want motor boats and canoes running into each other. So, um, so we do have... um, so we have the lake open, and also the soccer game will be starting up here real soon. Soccer is open for everybody from ages 4 to 94. So um, anybody who wants to can do that, and, and, and it's a fun game. So um, we'll try not to hurt anybody. And then, um, and then lunch is at 1230, and hopefully at that time we'll let you know if there's an update on the swimming pool, but uh, lunch is at 1230. There is is coffee and snacks in the lounge uh, area, so if you want uh, something to eat or drink before lunch, that's available as well. So um, that's it. I think that's it. Anything else? Okay, I think we got all. Have a great morning, and we'll see you at lunchtime at 1230.